Well, tonight is going to be dealing with some really heavy stuff. Every week that we come together is massive as we deal with sort of spiritual things, things of great moment. Uh, But today is going to be particularly heavy. And I want to let you know that up front because I know many of you come to church week by week uh, looking for hope. You know, you come along because life is stressful, it's difficult, there's all kinds of challenges in your life, and you come along hoping that as you come into church, it'll be a healing time, it'll be a time of of speaking to your life of comfort and strength and hope, and uh, it's right that you come expecting that, actually, that's what church should bring you, because we have a message of great hope. We have an incredible message of the Lord Jesus Christ and His victory and His conquest. But um, that Lord Jesus who conquers, conquers over a need... And sometimes what we need to do is pay attention very closely to the need, not just the conquering, but the need that's being conquered. And that's tonight. My purpose tonight is not to relieve you of a load, though often at church when you come along, that is the purpose. My hope tonight is to actually add a load, is actually to, in a sense, weigh you down a little more. And in fact, the kind of load that I hope... Uh, might come upon you tonight is one that might clear the way of other loads. It might um, clear you off some of your other concerns. You see, all of us do carry concerns. All of us have things that hang over us, that loom over us, stress, worries and fears. In my sense, it's kind of the only the under five-year-old that you might hope lived a life that's carefree. You know what I mean? Like the kid just in that early period of time, if family life is stable... You just hope they grow up um, thinking about unicorns and mermaids and just drifting on through life and pink and all that. I've just had grandkids staying and that's all they talked about. And uh, mermaids are real, I'm told. But, um, you know, you just, you just hope it's beautiful playing and lots of fun. But I tell you, that's got to change. I mean, it does change. What age is the stage where it changes? When the real world starts pressing in and all the stresses and strains? Maybe it's when you start school. You have to deal with other people. Uh, Maybe it's earlier in some of your families. It's been very difficult. But at some point, adult life begins to press in. Adult life where you have to face things, where you have to face the pain and the hurts and the burdens. Now, I don't know what they might be for you tonight. I mean, it might be that some of you, um, you've kind of moved out of home and your burden, the thing that looms large for you is keeping the money going so you can stay out of home. (laughs) Do you mean that's constantly in your mind? It might be that you're worried about relationships. That's constantly things that you're carrying that looms large for you. Or how you're going to get through all the, the load that you've got, the work that's happening, the study, whatever. There might be relationship stresses, home stresses. You, you, you come with all kinds of things. That's adult life. Adult life is living with burdens. It's being alert to responsibilities and concerns that you might have for others. The need to pay the bills, to put food on the table. If you feel all of this, it's normal. Some of you will carry health concerns, perhaps for yourself or for family what's happening and so on. All of us have these kinds of things. The carefree life is the child's life, not the adult life. So up front tonight, I want to say that tonight will be about adding to your stress, adding a load that I hope might diminish the other loads. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that at some point in our future... Every one of us will stand before the God of all the earth 
and be required to give an account for how we've lived. Every one of us. God's judgment on that day will be perfect, it will be final. And the result of that judgment will either be an eternal welcome into home with Him forever or an eternal rejection and condemnation and punishment forever. Now, is that not a load to carry, thinking on that future? Is that not something that ought to loom over our experience of life? Well, of course, it will only loom over your experience of life if you're aware of it, if you pay attention to it. And the point of tonight is that we must be aware of it, we must pay attention to it. That's the point of tonight, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. There is nothing, there is nothing in your life like the day that is about to come, where every human before God will bear the consequences of sin eternally. And the loss that many will experience on that day will be dreadful, full of dread. Ought that not concern us? Especially it ought to concern us because by nature, none of us is worthy of being received by God. Every one of us is by nature an object of His wrath, says Ephesians chapter 2. And so our expectation on that day, if it were just ourselves that stood there, uncovered by the merits of anyone else, if it's just us who fronts up before that God on that day, our only expectation is condemnation. You see, tonight is a very serious topic. Now, every week is serious but tonight is deeply so. So my aim is to convince you of the fact of this coming day and convince you that it must become a truth that looms large in your life. I don't just want to convince you of a truth. I want to convince you that this truth of the coming judgment of God needs to loom over your life. It must hang over you. And I want to convince you of this by considering how it played out in the life of Jesus and then add some further thoughts towards the end about what we do with it all. Now, I want to, I want to take us through the life of Jesus to do this instead of sort of doing a bunch of verses here and there in terms of what the Bible teaches about judgment and so on. I don't want to just do that, though that's a good exercise to do and I hope you did some of that through the week. I don't want to just talk about the meaning of the word hell and where it's come from, Gehenna and what have you. I want to take us through the life of Jesus because I think when you actually see... Jesus speaking about these things, it puts flesh on this reality, it brings it home in a fresh way, I trust, and it gives greater weight and also hope. So, Jesus, the topic of judgment, heaven or hell, loomed large before Jesus because He was a kingdom preacher. He came preaching a thing called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Come with me, we're going to go through Matthew's gospel to do this together. Come with me to Matthew uh, chapter 3, let's start there. Grab your Bibles, flip over there. Oh, 4, Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 17. This This is the very first 
statement of his public preaching. And you get it there in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. He's now beginning to speak publicly. And what are his first words when he speaks publicly? You see it there. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Kingdom of heaven, let me take you through this very quickly. Kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? He's talking about the time when God, in the future, one day will establish his rule over all of existence, over all of creation, over all of humanity, over all the spiritual forces in the world, in a way that's uncontested, where he will put down all opposition, hostility and uh, hatred towards him, he will crush it all, and he will be established again as the uncontested centre point, as is fitting for the God of the universe, as is fitting for the one who is the creator, sustainer and giver of all things, at the centre. Now, I, I say uncontested because at the moment he is ruling he is the God who is sovereign over all things he continues to rule all things even today though people don't recognize that but at the moment he rules in a context where people contest his rule they're opposed to his rule they rebel against his rule they live apathetically towards his rule one there is a day to come says Jesus when God will crush all of that opposition and establish a time where the nature of his rule will be received and accepted by all, all will bow the knee, and all of this will happen in a place fit for his rule, a new heavens and a new earth. The kingdom, the kingship of God is coming in a new, fresh way. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Now, in light of this coming of the rule of God being re-established, what does Jesus say? In light of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, repent. Repent. Now, what does the word repent mean? Well, the word re repent means do, do, a, do a 180 degree turn. Do, do, do you see, it's to say, I, I've been running life and going this way, ignoring God, being hostile towards God, being apathetic towards whatever, not in a relationship with God at all. I'm living my life, doing what I want to do, how I want to do it. And Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Repent. Turn around. Turn from having lived for yourself. Turn around and now live under the rule of God. Come back into his kingdom, gladly acknowledging his rule. That's what it is to repent. Now, why repent? Because when this day comes, all opposition to this God will be crushed. Now, they're harsh words, but the Bible doesn't hold back. There's a day coming when God will judge with righteousness and every person who has ignored him, dismissed him, failed to live under his rule, every person has, who has um, uh, lived life their own way without regard to, will be judged and condemned. Repent, says Jesus, as his first public sermon. The kingdom is at the centre of all that he taught. And so therefore this cluster of ideas hangs around it. The fact of a coming judgment, the need to repent, the fact of what that judgment will bring, our only hope in himself. These things cluster around it because he's a kingdom preacher who preaches the coming kingdom, the rule of God. Now let me show you this as we go through Matthew's Gospel and the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Come to chapter 5. 
Chapter 5 records for us not his first sermon, but his most extended uh, sermon that's recorded there for us, um, which begins with a thing called the Beatitudes. Now, many of you will be familiar with this, but I want to draw attention firstly to this. The Beatitudes, which start the Sermon on the Mount, verse 3 and verse 10, the first and last of them, in a sense, focus on the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is constantly on his thoughts and his minds as he preaches. In between, verse 4 down to verse 9, the various blessings that occur there aren't far from the idea of this kingdom as well. Because he says, blessed are those who mourn, verse 4. Now he's not just talking about anyone who has a hard time in life, that they're blessed. What he's saying is, blessed are those who grieve over the failure of the world to recognise God for who He is. Blessed are those who grieve over the fact that God is not regarded as the King in His kingdom. He says, you're the blessed ones because you're in touch with the reality that is coming and you will be comforted when the kingdom comes. You're the blessed one, he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not just those who hunger and thirst for things to be bad, to be undone. It's those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness that comes from the rule of God, from the, the, thirst, the righteousness that comes from being related to this God appropriately. And he says, you're the blessed one because you're in touch with what matters most. And one day you'll be established in this world where there'll be a kingdom, where you'll be filled, where God's rule will be there. Jesus' thinking is dominated by this coming kingdom, such that he sees everything here and now through the lens of the coming kingdom. You might not have anything in life. You might be a person who grieves over the failure to glorify God in our world who hungers for sin to be done away with and you've smashed and hurt and Jesus says, don't pay attention to your circumstances because there's a kingdom coming and you are the blessed one to be in touch with it. Do you see how Jesus brings a whole other orientation? This is the whole sermon. There are many wonderful things about living under the rule of God, His good hand, trusting Him as a Father who provides. There's beautiful things with the sermon. But constantly He returns to this theme of the coming kingdom and so the coming judgment. Come with me to chapter 5 verse 21. In chapter 5 verse 21, he talks about murder and how horrible it is and how God is opposed to it, has been in the past. But he particularly draws attention to the fact that God is really most concerned with the heart that gives rise to murder. He doesn't care that people don't just pull the trigger. He's concerned about the anger and the hatred and the hostility that gives rise to the pulling of the trigger. But what I want you to notice there at the verse 22, the end of verse 22... He says, this, this heart issue is so serious that anyone who says, you fool, anyone that has a heart of opposition against others will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Right away now he's talking about hell and judgment to come. This stuff matters, not just for good life today, but because there's a judgment to come. Notice a little bit further in verse 29... He's concerned here talking about idolatry and he's concerned, of course, not just to focus on the act of uh, sexual immorality but the heart, the heart of lust that gives rise to it. But notice verse 29, how he again turns to the issue of judgment. Listen to verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, if your right eye in the act of lustfulness, you see, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
You see, the Lord Jesus is so concerned about the judgment to come, the condemnation that will be there for sinners, for the unrighteous, for those who are opposed to God, apathetic towards God, that he says, you are better, you are better to cut off body parts, to live in this world with less than you would otherwise have, to to disable yourself in this life, if it would but help you stand on the final day, because that day is going to be so dreadful. He teaches on prayer. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 9. He teaches on prayer. And when he comes to prayer, uh, he... Now, just notice this. The language of prayer in the New Testament is not a conversation, as I've seen on some boards around the place. It's not a conversation. It's bringing requests to your Father, God. And the Lord's Prayer has six requests. All but one of them are about the kingdom of God. That the, God, the, the name of God might be hallowed, made holy, seen to be holy. That his kingdom might come, that his will might be done. In the midst of that, there is one request that relates to our daily needs. But then he gets back quickly again to the kingdom. And says, pray about the kingdom coming. Because the king will come. He's dominated by this concern. And come across to chapter 6, verse 20. He talks about the need to pay attention to where your heart is. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. For Jesus, it's not this age that matters. It's the next one, which is forever. Make sure you're established into eternity. Don't pay attention to making your life big here. Make sure your heart is dominated by the age to come. Come across to chapter 7, 7 verse 13. We're not even finished his first sermon yet. Look at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter to what end? Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, judgment, condemnation, hell. And he says, make sure you enter through the narrow gate. Because it's easy to go the path of destruction and many are on it. But narrow is the gate and narrow the path that leads to life and only a few are on it. Enter, make sure you care about eternity because there's so much at stake. You know, he, he brings this massive sense of the kingdom and judgment that looms over everything. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see how he's dominated by this concern. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And in words that are deeply chilling, he says, many on that day will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, am I not yours? Have I not done amazing things in your name? Haven't I been an impressive Christian? And Jesus says, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me. Depart from me into darkness. You see, Jesus is warning and warning, making sure that if you have a response to him, it's a right response because there's so much at stake. Jesus carries a burden and it's for your soul for your eternal destiny. 
He is constantly in just this one message that's full of many beautiful, comforting, inspiring truths. He keeps coming again and again to the kingdom that's coming and the need to be ready for it, to be prepared, because if you are unprepared, it'll cost you everything. You'll be shut out from the presence of God. You'll be locked up into eternal darkness. You'll be locked into hell. You know, the rest of his ministry is never far from this thought as well. Come to me to, with me to chapter 13. Come across to chapter 13. In chapter 13, Jesus gives a series of parables that all teach about the kingdom of heaven that's coming. I want to draw your attention just to a couple very quickly. In verse 36, there's a parable called the parable of the weeds. Um, but notice verse 41 where it ends. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Judgment again. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's the idea that things will be so grievous, so distressing, that Jesus says that experience in hell will be a constant one of grief and gnashing and agony. Jesus doesn't mince his words. Come across a little bit further to verse um, 47 of the same chapter. He talks about the parable of the net. But look with me particularly at verse 48. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. That is how it will be at the end of this age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again and again, Jesus comes back to this issue. Come to chapter 16. Come across to chapter 16. Verse 24, he teaches about how important it is to respond to him appropriately, that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. But look at verse 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Because to forfeit your soul is to be found under the judgment of God in an eternity of condemnation where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, in darkness, in fire. Jesus piles up the images. He is horrified himself at the thought that you would go there. And he wants to bring home to us the horror of it. Because verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus will come and there will be judgment. Come across to chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 8. He repeats what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Better to enter life maimed. He goes back there because it matters so much. Come across to 22, we're almost done. Come across to chapter 22. In chapter 2, he warns again about the judgment to come and the danger of being cast out. But look at verse 13. Then the king told the attendants, take him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Come across to chapter 25. Again, Jesus teaches these things so explicitly, the reading that we just had. Judgment there is cast as the separation of sheep from the goats. The sheep are those that 
um, are in relationship with God. The goats are those that have opposed to God, that have been apathetic to God, who have drifted away from God. And look what he says in verse 46. The goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's an important verse amongst a number in this context, which makes it very clear that what Jesus has in mind is not the kind of judgment hell that's called annihilation, where upon judgment someone ceases to exist. No, no, no. What you have here is a parallel between the experience of those that are in relationship with God who have life forever. He says in the same way, there'll be punishment forever. Eternal, conscious judgment. Friends, these things are almost unspeakable, aren't they? But Jesus speaks them repeatedly. This future event of judgment, the coming kingdom and the judgment that clusters around it dominates him. It hung over his thinking, his teaching. He returned to it again and again and again and again. You know, it's puzzling but interesting that we often, many people often say Jesus was the man of love. The Apostle Paul was the one of sort of hard-edged, hard-nosed, hostile kind of guy. But you know, the Apostle Paul speaks more about the love of God than Jesus. And Jesus speaks more about the judgment of God than Paul. Why does Jesus speak on it so much? Because he is a man of love. And he speaks on it so often because it's true, it's real, it's coming. And he is deeply concerned to warn you that you might never go there. To break into our calloused hearts and open our eyes to get outside of the circumstances of life that just so consume us and wake us up. There's a judgment to come, he says. It is terrifying. Cut off whatever part of your body you need to to make sure you don't go to judgment. Pay whatever price in this life you need to pay. He speaks on it because he comes to save us from it. Sent by his loving Father who loves the world so much that he sent his only son. Jesus is born to be a saviour, to save us from not our lack of self-esteem, not to save us from um, our failure to have the relationships we ought to have and the failure to get the money. He doesn't come to save us from those things. He comes to save us from condemnation that our sin deserves. He comes to save us from eternal judgment. Get clarity about these things. And they're heavy, they're heavy. You hear all of this, and who is not afraid of what is in our future? Well, I'll tell you who's not afraid. The ones most worthy of it. Because you find, if you find yourself not at all trembling about these truths, it's probably because you're not convinced they're true. It's probably because you don't care about them or God. That puts you in exactly the place of danger. 
to tremble before this God is the appropriate response. None of us is worthy. And that's the point of a saviour. There is one who comes, who must come to save us because we can't save ourselves. We can't li- None of us can live a life that makes us acceptable on that day. And this is the beauty of the gospel message. The beauty of the proclamation in those early centuries and down through the centuries that there is a saviour. We are not lost to this judgment. God in his great love has sent a saviour. Jesus who on the night before he was killed, wrestled with his father. Do you remember this? The Garden of Gethsemane. Wrestled with his heavenly father in the garden. And and, uh, he, he, he goes into the garden and he prays, Lord, take this cup from me. And as he prays this, Lord, take this cup from me, what's he talking about? Whatever he's talking about, it causes him great anguish and distress because Luke, Luke's account tells us that he, he was so distressed, he sweated blood. Or, you know, perspired so deep. He was ripped apart by this. What's this cup? Well, as you chase the language back through the Old Testament, you find this cup is the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath, the wine of God's judgment against sin. And Jesus knows that the next day, it's not just the nails that's going to hurt. It's not just the death so much that's going to hurt. It's, not the, it's that he will face the cyclone of God's wrath for sin on himself. And the thought that that would happen almost breaks him. Consider this. When Jesus in the garden thought that he would have to bear the sin of Andrew Heard and face the judgment that that sin deserves, the condemnation that sin deserves before his heavenly Father, it almost shattered him. The thought that he would have to experience that. And we drift through life as if it's no big deal. The Lord Jesus reveals in the garden how serious it is. And yet wonderfully, he gets up from his knees and he steps resolutely towards the cross, doing what his Father wills that he does because of his great love to save sinners. And so because of his death as a substitute, The one who takes upon himself the judgment I deserve, I can go free. I can stand on judgment day, not because I'm more righteous than anyone else, but because Jesus' blood has covered me. His merits stand in my place. He has paid the penalty for me and paid it for anyone who looks to Jesus and bows the knee to Jesus and owns him as their Lord and Saviour. If you've done that, you have received an incredible gift more in future weeks. But we have received a salvation from a judgment that is horrifying. Everything in Jesus' life, his teaching, his words, his prayers, his actions, were dominated by this coming reality that one day there will be judgment condemnation for God's image bearers brought on by their rebellion their apathy their sin their evil their rejection what we count as normal will bring judgment now I'm conscious that a lot of this raises questions for us Uh, in the quiet suburban streets of comfortable central coast Australia we find ourselves going surely this is not true 
This just sounds, this stands over the top. Um, is it fair even? Is it appropriate that a loving God should do such a thing? That there should be such a place as hell in God's... Should that be the case? Surely God is not that kind of God. These questions do come and I, I won't spend much time on it tonight because any thoughtful reading of the accounts of Jesus' life makes very obvious that he says it's true. There is an eternal judgment to come. There is a hell. And that he says it's so is enough. But a few thoughts might help. Is it appropriate that there be such a place as hell? A judgment of God upon humankind? Well, I want to explore this just very briefly by considering the alternative. Imagine a universe where there is no judgment. Imagine a universe where we can all just live however we want to do, die, and either just all be ushered into bliss or die and that be it and there's nothing beyond. Imagine that kind of universe. A good universe? Not until you think about it. When you think about it, what emerges is, it means that humans can live their life hurting, killing, using others, abusing, murdering, then die quietly in their sleep and escape all justice. A world without judgment after death is a world where there won't ever be justice. You can't get it. You know, the events of this last week, I don't know how much you're aware of what's happening in Israel um, with Hamas and they're coming into uh, the, the, across the borders and so on. That They have slaughtered civilian innocents, babies. It's just been uh, appalling. It's been horrendous. Now, if you know anything about that, I dare say you are finding yourself saying, where is justice? Is there not someone that can bring justice into this situation? Now, what we want as we cry out for justice is not some kind of retaliation that does more harm than good, but what we want in justice is a kind of deep, insightful, careful analysis of the heart and the circumstances that gave rise to it so that there can be a genuine judgment that's fair. What we want is justice. Who can deliver that kind of justice? Not any human court, only God. The God who always does what's right. Now, here's the thing, friends, we need a universe where there is a judgment after death so that justice can be victorious in our world, where you know that truth will come out. Without it, there is no justice. Let me give you another thought here. If there's no judgment, it means that your choices, and we looked at this last weekend together, but if there's no judgment after death, it means that your choices for good or for evil don't matter, and therefore you don't matter. You see, if there's no judgment, then I can live a life of um, debauchery, selfishness, greed, um, use, people hurt, I can do whatever I like, die peacefully uh, and that be whatever life I wanted to have made it. Or I could choose to be a really wonderful cause-driven person who gets online and fights all different things and I'm that kind of person who does the environment. You can choose whichever life you want and if there's no judgment, it doesn't matter which one you chose. Because you'll just die and cease to exist and it'll all be over. Choose whichever. It means if there's no judgment that what you choose doesn't matter. There's no significance to your choices. No one cares. There's no ultimate meaning to them. 
live as you want, do as you please, and it also therefore means you don't matter, because no one cares about you. But if there is judgment, it means your choices do matter, they are taken very seriously, it means you matter because God takes you seriously. It's been said actually that hell is testimony to the dignity of human life, and I think rightly, hell is testimony to the... It's, hell is evidence that God dignifies our life. You get rid of it, we lose all dignity. You put it in place, we are dignified, but there's a cost. You know, the next thought might be the consequences though of this judgment seem so out of proportion. The way Jesus speaks about it, with tears in his eyes, he talks with language of eternal fire, eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. Surely it's over the top to talk about a judgment in hell that's forever. Doesn't that not feel over the top? After all, what did we do? At our heart, the problem here is the very reason actually we deserve judgment. We do not see or we don't let ourselves see the holiness of God in His infinite majesty. We think eternal judgment is over the top because we don't let ourselves see God in His infinite, perfect majesty and holiness as of such infinite worth that to offend against Him is a sin of infinite significance. We don't see God as we ought in His holiness and purity and infinite value. And we don't see our sin for what it is. We think it's just a slip-up. We just think it's a naughty mistake. Kids, it's not. It's rebellion. It's rebellion against the Creator who gives us life and breath and everything else. To live in sexual sin is to set yourself against the holy God of the universe. To live in apathy towards this God is to set yourself against the God who will judge. It's not inappropriate to ask questions. It's not inappropriate to wrestle intellectually with these things. Of course, wrestle with them. But take care. Don't let these intellectual debates become a smokescreen for greater sin against the holy God of the universe. Ask, wrestle, yes, but do it with care. In light of the repeated and heartfelt teaching of the Lord Jesus, our Saviour, who died because it's all so serious. You know, I've taken us through the life of Jesus to show the truth that this future is real, it's terrifying, and to also show us how much it hung over everything Jesus said and did. I dare say in his quiet moments when he tried to get away for a rest, as he did, the, the reality of the coming judgment hung there in the back of his mind, in the foreground. It loomed over his life. What must I do, Jesus would say to himself, I must go to Jerusalem, where I'll be rejected, tortured, beaten, nailed to a cross, crucified. I must go to Jerusalem to save sinners. The Father who loves sends me to do this thing. He took time out to rest. He slept, he ate, he drank, he went out to dinner with friends. He did things in life, yes. 
But always at the back of his mind is this future fact of the kingdom of God coming. Time is short. Judgment will happen with, for many, eternal punishment. You know, there are big things in our life that, in our world that keep happening. This, yesterday was a big moment in our country's life. Uh, I don't know how much you tuned into it, but for months and months and months our country has debated and discussed. There's agony, there's hatred, there's hostility, there's all kinds of reactions going on. It's a big thing for our country. But I tell you what, it's nothing. It's, it's a nothing compared to the kingdom of God coming and the need to repent because we will all one day stand before the God of the universe. It's a nothing. Now, I, I, I don't imagine we can all live with the kind of heightened state of awareness that Jesus had. I just think Jesus is a man above all men. Um, but surely a true and genuine sense of these things must weigh on us more than they do. Surely a true and genuine sense of these things must weigh on us more than they do. And if that's the case, then how do we live? Well, this judgment to come, this hell to come is terrifying. It's almost impossible to imagine what it will be like and you almost don't want to. How do you live with the fact that many we know are destined to go there with family? I have, you know some of my story, I have family who do not know the Lord. I live with that as a burden. Anyone outside of the grace and mercy that's only found in Christ is bound to this judgment. How do we live with that? Well, we must face it. We mustn't ignore it. We mustn't minimise it. I sense that it's hard emotionally for us to cope with it, so we often do that path of um, distracting ourselves or reinterpreting it, finding some way to actually, it'll be okay. For many of us, we end up living as if it's a fiction, it's of no account. And we end up with a kind of Christianity that we live as a pursuit of the carefree, happy life. We only have one life, I want to make the most of it. I live my carefree, coastal life. We watch another Netflix series, we go on another holiday, we plan our next trip, we fill our lives with hobbies, we give ourselves to trivia in terms of just obsessing about the way we look, uh, what we wear, how our house will be, what kind of car we drive, while the world we live in is headed towards the most dreadful moment in history standing before the judgment of God. How ought things be different when you understand all of this? How did it play out for God? Well, He gave and He gave that there might be a way of being saved from this judgment. He did not spare that which was most precious to Him because of His deep love for the lost. He gave, He did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all. Now, do you see where this is going for us? What are you giving? You who know these things, 
What are we giving of our time, our resources, our prayers, our money? What are we giving aware of this most serious reality that we live in? Now, just to be clear, we've got a four-week series on EV Grow, and I say this each time we do it, each time we go to this three years, every three years, this isn't actually about the money. I mean, it is. We need to raise a certain amount of money to pay for the bills, uh, the property. We do need to raise money. But I want a headline. If I had to choose between raising the money and your heart's being transformed and changed to be more Christ-like, captivated and captured by the things of Christ without giving money, I'd choose that every time. Because the money is just money. We as pastors in this place care more about your spiritual well-being than we do the bills. And so we need to raise the money, but that is secondary. We want so much that you are... The, the light goes on, you see what's happening, you see who God is, you see what the future is, your life is transformed and changed and we trust God that that will mean the money comes that we need to have. You need to pay attention to it but it will be an outworking of the bigger and deeper transformation that God works by His Spirit through His Word in your life. You see, with the truth of the coming judgment, if you have any conception of how big it is, how can you live casual, relaxed Christian lives? How can we live life in the way that our friends all just live it? You can't. The great ambition of our friends is to, is to just amass enough, to enjoy enough, to go and get the next trip, uh, to find the partner that will fulfil it. That's our friends. Those things can't be our driving concern. Especially because we have the words of eternal life. We have the answer to the problem. We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the message of a saviour who has come and solved the problem. Who has paid in his own blood that people might be forgiven and rescued. Who has gone where we deserve to go so that we don't need to go there. These things are massive. We have the news of eternal life. You know, this series is an important one, but it's not about money simply, it's about your heart. That I trust will show itself in your giving. But my question for us as we finish, is if you get a sense of these things more deeply tonight, how will your life be different? If you are more aware of the coming kingdom of heaven, the judgment that clusters around that, how serious it is all, how will your life be different? Now, for some of you sitting here, the thing that you need to do is repent and turn from living for yourself and bow the knee to Jesus. Because I know some of you sitting here are either exploring the things of Christ and good on you, wonderful to have you with us. Come to this Jesus and find life now. It's so much at stake. But some of you are drifting. You've been around church for years and you're drifting. Repent. Nothing matters more than this. See how much is at stake that you come to the Saviour tonight. 
But others of you, love the Lord Jesus. You know your forgiveness in him. See how much this matters for others, that we might give ourselves to the task of bringing the gospel to the world, to our region, to our friends, family, workmates, giving to that end as well, making it the burden of your prayers. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, um, uh, uh, our hearts are overwhelmed with the dreadful realities of hell. And we pray for your strength to make sense of it, to, to um, own the truth of it, face the reality of it. And we pray, please, in your mercy, you would shape our lives because of it. You would help us be transformed and changed to live lives that reflect these eternal realities, that we might break free from the patterns of life our friends have, that we might not just be consumed with all the entertainment our world provides, that we would actually be given over to the cause of the gospel we ask. In Jesus' great name, amen.